Welcome to the 2020 podcast program from the Harriet Beecher Stowe Center in Hartford, Connecticut. The Stowe Center preserves and interprets Stowe's Hartford home and the center's collections, promotes lively discussions about her work and her life, and inspires commitment to social justice and to positive change. In the wake of the corona pandemic and the required temporary closing of the Stowe Center in 2020, we're working to move some of our on-site programming online. We're doing this in a DIY tradition, and for our speakers, many are producing content online for the very first time. As we learn, we are hoping to be part of the positive change our nation needs in this difficult moment. I can assure you the Stowe Center welcomes your participation in our work now more than ever. With that said, let me introduce the Stowe Center's Artist Talk series with award-winning author Susan Campbell, who's a distinguished lecturer at the University of New Haven's Department of Communication, Film, and Media Studies. She's also a columnist for Hearst Newspapers in Connecticut and a frequent contributor on issues of housing and homelessness to WNPR and the political website The Hill, as well as the newspaper The Guardian. She's an award-winning author of Dating Jesus, Fundamentalism, Feminism, and the American Girl, and the biography Tempest-Tossed, The Spirit of Isabel Beecher Hooker. Her latest book, Searching for the American Dream in Fog Hollow, America, was published by Wesleyan University Press in March of 2019. Susan was born in Kentucky and raised in Southwest Missouri. For more than a quarter century, she was a staff columnist at the Hartford Current, where her work has been recognized by the National Women's Political Caucus, the New England Associated Press News Executives, the Society for Professional Journalists, the American Association of Sunday and Feature Writers, and the National Society for Newspaper Columnists, as well as the Sunday Magazine Editors Association. She returned to freelance in March of 2013. This podcast is part of a triptych where we are celebrating the centennial of women's right to vote. So much has overshadowed this important anniversary in 2020. Join me in welcoming Susan Campbell as she discusses a very important Connecticut suffrage activist. I'd like to talk a little bit about the Beecher family. Um, it's it's important to an origin story to look at where someone came from. Isabella Beecher uh, came from a family that was known in the media of the day as the fabulous Beechers, because each of them in one way or the other had distinguished him or herself in their chosen field of study, whether it be the ministry, all the men, or uh, in the case of Catherine with education and housewifery and Harriet Beecher Stowe with her uh, activism in regard to um, slavery. And then there was Isabella, (laughs) who uh, actually distinguished herself in the field of suffragism and votes for women and equal rights for women in general. But you wouldn't have been able to tell that early on necessarily. The father of the fabulous Beechers was Lyman Beecher, who was this Calvinist preacher. And just a real quick and dirty definition of Calvinist is uh, Calvinist is someone who will stand at the top of the stairs, 
throw herself down, pick herself up at the bottom and say, glad that's over. For a Calvinist of Lyman Beecher's time, both the devil and God walk the earth, and your life was a continual tug of war between those two powers. Um, He softened along the way, but he was still pretty much a rock-ribbed Presbyterian fire-breathing. It was said that he could preach for nine hours on a Sunday and, and at his congregation in Litchfield, Connecticut, and he was animated and wired up. There, and I don't say this to be disrespectful, there was probably a diagnosis in there for him because he would exhaust himself. There was one period of time when he had to spend a year plowing a field, just wrung out. But he was incredibly popular and incredibly well-known. Um, and I don't want to leave you with the idea that he was the caricature, Bible-banging, hateful dad. He was actually a very loving father. He would get on the floor and play with his children. And one thing that really distinguished him from other uh, men of his day is that he expected his daughters to be every bit as educated as his sons. Some of that may have been the influence of his first wife, Roxana Foote of the Guilford Foots. Um, She was every bit his intellectual equal. It was, from all indication, a beautiful love match. It was said that she would prop up books on her spindle so that she could both make yarn and and also read. Um, Although her husband's renown was pretty incredible, he never made a lot of money, and he wasn't necessarily all that good at managing money. The term poor as a church mouse really applied well here. So she would take in boarders and she would tutor and um, her daughters followed in that vein so that even though their father may have been this rock-ribbed Presbyterian, he was, in a sense, a bit of a feminist. Anyway, one thing about Lyman uh, Beecher is that he wore his wives out and when they each one would hit 39, 40, 41, they would die. Uh, Roxana Foote, the love of his life, died. And a year to the day that she died, he left Litchfield for Boston, and the people in his congregation um, gossiped about it and said they knew exactly what he was doing. What he was doing was going up and fetching wife number two, Harriet Porter. Uh, That would be Isabella's mother. Harriet Porter um, was from a wealthy and influential family and was in no way equipped to be the wife of a poor church mouse. She pretty much quickly took to her bed. We know that Lyman visited her at least a couple of times um, because she did have children by him, among them Isabella, born February 22nd, 1822. Um, Isabella was born into a family that was still stinging from the loss of Lyman's first wife, Roxana. Um, The older children um, were talked about their mother a lot, were, were probably mourned her till the day they died. And Harriet Porter was not equipped to be a substitute, not that any woman can substitute for someone's mother, but she was completely ill-equipped for that. Um, and through the family moves, um, Harriet just never really rallied physically. And so the rearing of Isabella was left more to um, a beloved aunt 
and her older sisters. When she was born, her oldest sister was 20 years older than her. That was Catherine, who never married and spent a great deal of time rearing her younger siblings. Um, so there was a lack of a mother, if not a mother figure, for Isabella. There was a father who was pretty mercurial, if involved, Um and there was a family that was on display pretty much everywhere they went. They, when they would go to Boston, you know, it's the preacher's kids. The preacher's kids get all the attention, and not all, all of that is good. When they were out in Ohio and, and when uh, Isabella lost her mother, it was always a bit on a public stage. Because, again, at that time, ministers had the eye of the public more so than they were. They were sort of celebrities, as we would call them now. Anyway. Um, and Isabella came into this home where everybody was an intellectual giant, and they were encouraged by their father, male and female, to discuss everything. Um, when I was a kid, I remember reading that the Kennedys did that, and I wanted so much to have a family like that. Uh, we just argued. In the case of the Beechers, they argued, but they sourced their arguments, and everybody's word was considered important as long as you could talk about where you got your information. As they grew older and each Beecher would launch him or herself out of the house, they took to letter writing. And these letters were like a transcript from the smartest people in the room. If you'd sat down at a party and wrote down what everybody said and then read it back later, that's how these letters read. And even though some of the family members actually were quite well off uh, as adults, they were always imprinted with that poor as a church mouse, with that struggling, financially struggling family. And so they would do round robin letters. And I think some of that was to save money, even though some of them had money and they didn't really need to save it. And they would, um, Harriet would write George and George would write Catherine and Catherine would write something and send it on to Mary and Mary would write something and send it on to Henry who would send it to Isabella and they would turn the page over and write up the sides. And, and it was, it, it was fascinating to, to read these letters and to see the depth I mean, there was some sibling rivalry and jabbing and that kind of thing, but mostly you brought your A-game to these letters. Um, and when I say sibling rivalry, there definitely was rivalry. Uh, Isabella, and I think this is one thing that made me like her a little more, she was human. She was jealous of her older sister's success, even while she was extremely proud of her and, and never, never hesitated to mention her sister and, and her writing. There was, there was this sense, there were a couple of little notes in letters where she would talk about her sister's bigness and how, you know, she can, uh, Isabella could write as well. And she didn't want to compare herself to her sister, but Harriet wasn't the only writer in the family. And it felt a lot like and I was a little sister. It felt a lot like a little sister trying to um, lift herself in the eyes of her older sibling, in this case, in the eyes of Harriet. There is no indication that Harriet at any point didn't support and love her sister, at least until they got older. And there was a family scandal. And, and we can talk about that a little bit later. There was a family scandal and Isabella found herself on the opposite side of the scandal from her other siblings, and there was a rift that I don't think was ever really repaired. But growing up, it must have been exhausting to, to always have to have your A-game, to 
Um, I get the sense that they would get together and nobody could just make a declarative statement without someone stepping in and saying, yes, but and to be continually corrected and then to always somewhat doubt yourself anyway, which I think Isabella did for all her bluster and her intention to one day be a female president. I think she did question her intellectual capabilities. Um, and that, that was interesting to see in those letters. Um, so that, that was the family, high-powered, smart as all get out, competitive in a sense, but loving. They, they definitely supported and loved one another. Uh, when um, Isabella's mother, Harriet Porter, died, she was sort of shuttled around between her older siblings' homes. They had all married and moved out. And it gave her a really close look at marriage, and it soured her on it quite a lot. Um, and I'll talk about what John Hooker, her husband, had to um, had to compete against to get her attention. Um, because she saw her sisters entering into marriage and then just sort of disappearing and becoming, you know, Mrs. Thomas Perkins. Um, and she definitely didn't want that. She wanted, she wanted to be her own person. Uh, and I think a lot of that was genetic and a lot of that was growing up Beecher. Um, there are a lot of references in all the letters that everyone wrote about the Beechers being I don't want to make it sound like they thought they were all that, but they did all feel as if they were here for a bigger purpose, that they all had a calling. Um, and that, that must have been a drag after a while. I mentioned in the last podcast when I was talking about the Beecher family, how um, when Isabella Beecher Hooker's mother died, she was a teenager, a young teenager, and Lyman did what he could, but he basically would farm her out to older siblings so she could live with them. And as such, she became like a Margaret Mead, this keen observer of the human end marriage. And it didn't impress her. <laughs> if, if, if you're an older sibling and you have a significantly younger sibling and that sibling comes and visits, you don't necessarily try to pretty things up. Like if you're having an argument with your spouse, you have it in front of your little brother or sister because, hey, we're all family. And that allowed Isabella to see her Beecher siblings and their, their spouses uh, uncut. And she walked away thinking, one, uh, that marriage was <laughs> uh, awful, and two, she thought it was particularly um, detrimental to her female siblings, to her sisters, who were these high-powered intellectual people. Except, all of them were married except for Catherine. To her married sisters, who were high-powered intellectual people, they seemed to dim their lights when they were in marriage. Uh, and Isabella could look to Catherine, who, even though she annoyed very much her younger siblings because she was the bossy older sister. And in fact, Isabel at one point wrote Catherine and told her that she couldn't keep basically sponging off her siblings and traveling around the country and making them pay to put her up only to have her harangue them about their lives. Um, but Isabella, even though that was her role model for an unmarried woman, Isabella chose that. She came to Hartford to live with her sister Mary. Mary was the one private Beecher who was married to uh, Mary was married to Thomas Perkins, a Hartford attorney. 
And they were quite well off, especially compared to how the Beechers had grown up. And Isabella settled in, and um, she had been moved there because the sisters had started to discuss that the family was living in Ohio at the time, and the, the, the sisters had been sending letters back and forth, worried that Isabella was becoming too flighty. There was so much emphasis on ignoring your looks, and Isabella happened to be a good-looking young woman, a pretty girl. And there, there's one letter um, between the sisters where they bemoan the fact that Isabella is starting to talk about fashion and hair and she's a beecher and these things shouldn't concern her. You know, she was 13. So of course she's going to talk about that. So she was basically exiled to Hartford. It couldn't, nothing better could have happened for her because she was suddenly in the the lap of wealth in an intellectually stimulating town and her sister Mary loved her completely and and was not the somewhat overbearing older sister that Catherine and a little bit of Harriet were. While she was living with the Perkins, um, Isabella met a young man who was studying for the law. And at that time, there wasn't so much an emphasis on a law school education. If you wanted to be a lawyer, you worked with an already established attorney. You studied law there. And uh, John Hooker was studying with Thomas Perkins, Isabella's uh, brother-in-law with whom she was living. John Perkins was from a Farmington family, and I mentioned him in an earlier discussion. He was an incredible feminist and um, abolitionist, and he was an abolitionist of the of the highest order. In other words, a lot of the Beechers. Uh, all Beechers thought that slavery was awful and that no one should say they could own another person. That was just inhumane. But they soft-pedaled more what they thought should happen to people who had been enslaved. And if you've read Uncle Tom's Cabin, you'll notice that there's an emphasis on colonization on people who had been enslaved going to back to Africa, except back to Africa as a misnomer. Some of the people who were held in slavery had been in this country for generations, and their connection to Africa was pretty thin. Um, so we look at, at people who wanted to colonize, send Amer former American slaves to Africa, more as brushing this under the rug as opposed to, okay, now they are fully enfranchised citizens. They can vote. They can uh, own land. They can run for office. No, let's just send them to Africa. John Hooker was an abolitionist, period, that we end slavery and then people who had been enslaved could now own land, could be full citizens, granted full rights. This was pretty radical. Uh, we like to think of Connecticut as a really progressive state, and, and but Connecticut had slavery, and Connecticut had this interesting, weird way of ending slavery that was really gradual. A, a date was picked. If you were born before this date, then you were free. If you were born, it's just, just weird. But John Hooker and his family were all for full and free abolitionism. Um, his father was a teacher in Farmington and John Hooker just soaked up books. Um, he went to Yale and he got sick, and then he tried to catch up on all his studies, and he read to the point that he damaged his eyes for life. Um, he was that kind of, not a Mr. Magoo, kind of walking into walls, but again, another intellectual. 
John Hooker saw Isabella and was immediately taken with her. Um, but he, he had no idea the buzzsaw he was about to walk into. And he began to express his interest. And Isabella was, you know, everybody likes to have attention paid to them. But she let him know very early on that she was probably never going to get married. Um, and they corresponded uh, back and forth. He would go back out to Farmington and they would write letters, long, long letters to each other. And she would resist his suggestion that they get married. He would come back again. Um, and finally, he basically, as I did with my own husband, he wore down to a nub. And she said, OK, look, we'll be engaged for two years um, if if in that time you find a better offer, you should take it. And, and at the end of two years, we'll reassess. But don't tell anyone we're engaged. What she was doing was really risking a lot because in that time and place, if you were engaged, it was a legally binding arrangement. And if the engagement was broken, it was assumed that the woman had done something wrong, probably of a sexual nature. So it was like stamping an A on your forehead. Um, or potentially stamping an A on your forehead to get engaged and then leave the door open for ending it. So they're writing letters back and forth, and John Hooker kept trying to reassure Isabella that that's not the kind of marriage he wanted, the marriage she saw in her older siblings. Uh, he wanted an, uh, a marriage of equals, and if he wanted the kind of marriage she was worried about, he'd get a dog. He had no intention of marrying someone he couldn't talk to. So it's so romantic. At the end of that two-year waiting period, um, Isabella wrote John a letter and said, well, the family's going to be in Hartford in August. We can do it then. <laughs> so they did. Um, and it turned out to be this incredible marriage of equals. I mean, they had their tiffs and they could get real, she could get really biting uh, when she disagreed with him, but they built a marriage of equals. And, um, and I sometimes think I one time read that the oldest daughter, um, or the second oldest daughter of Nancy and Ron Reagan once said that there was no room in the Reagan marriage for children that they, you know, they weren't bad people or bad parents. They just were so in love with each other that children were kind of in the way that may have been a little bit of the situation in the hooker home, not from John, but, um, Isabella had grown up without her mother and with a variety of mother figures, and she really struggled and agonized over what kind of mother she would be. And she started a motherhood journal that would just break your heart because she was really trying to be a good mother and really not entirely sure how to do that. And of her three children, one of her daughters was so much like her, and they constantly butted heads. Uh, there's one entry in a motherhood journal where Isabella said that on that day she sinned with her tongue. She yelled at her kids. And for some reason, that just seemed terrible to have done that. But she tried <laughs> really hard. I think that drew me to her as well when I was first researching her. Like, oh, someone else who isn't sure. She's a great mom. Um, and, and, and the house had a lot of love and a lot of laughter. And it had a lot of big names that would pass through. If someone came through Hartford on a speaker's tour or to give a concert, they would invariably stay at the Hooker Mansion, uh, which is over by Etna. Now now it's um, uh, carved up into apartments, but it's this beautiful brick Gothic uh, mansion, basically, that you really have to strain to see because it's hidden behind apartment houses. But 
Um, they wanted for nothing, um, maybe attention from their mom. The youngest, the, the first child that Isabella and John had, uh, Thomas, died uh, before he was two. And that also put her on thinner ice as a mother. She blamed herself, um, although it wasn't her fault. And that made her, on, on the one hand, not pay attention to her children and then shower them with a lot of attention. And that way she was probably a lot like her father, Lyman. Um, and I keep saying, but she tried. <laughs> we should all just tell her, but I'm trying and that's important. Um, and, and not having the genteel poverty to deal with. She felt guilty about that. She was always writing checks for people just because she knew she had so much. Um, but oh, that marriage, that marriage of equals when they, when, when John, um, as I said, he hurt his, he ruined his eyes basically in college. So he would read the Hartford Current to her in the morning and she would read Blackstone's commentary. And she came across a part where it described a woman after marriage and her legal rights, which were basically very, very few. And she threw the book across the study and said, see, (laughs) see what I said about marriage. And it took John a while to convince her, yes, but not ours. And in fact, they wrote a property law that they kept lobbying for for seven years until the Connecticut state legislature finally passed it. So when I say equal, yeah, very equal. She built an incredible family. There's this T-shirt and coffee mug that's popular, well-behaved women rarely make history. And I think if there's a patron saint of that, it's probably Isabella Beecher Hooker. I'm not trying to imply that she didn't behave, but she didn't follow the rules of her time. And she suffered greatly for it. And there's probably a lesson to all of us who ever... Who's, anyone who's ever found themselves on the, the ugly end of the stick for speaking out publicly about something. So Isabella Beecher Hooker came into her activism, uh, which was centered first upon abolition, and then, as with so many early suffragists, then on getting women the right to vote. And she was uh, outspoken about that and brooked no prisoners <laughs> about that. Um, and she suffered for it. She suffered for it for a lot of reasons, and really none of them are good. Uh, Let me give you an example of how she was the uh, butt of jokes when other people doing the exact same thing were not. Um, She lost her first child before the child turned two, and that scarred her in real significant ways. And um, she ended up embracing spiritualism, which still exists. There are still spiritualist churches here in Connecticut. And I'm not going to do it justice by boiling it down to, you know, a sentence. But basically in spiritualism, the idea is that the veil between the living and the dead is fairly thin and that you can still speak to the dead um, through mediums um, who are trained to listen to that particular vibration. I have just really not done spiritualism justice. There were several kinds of spiritualism, the kind that Isabella embraced, uh, also embraced Christianity. So it wasn't looked at as a demonic thing, talking to demons or talking through Satan to your dead loved one. It was just a way to connect. And spiritualism was immensely popular during the Civil War. 
imagine if you were a mother and your son had died on a battlefield, that one more opportunity to talk to him would be pretty attractive. And I think that's what fueled um, Isabella's interest in it. Uh, and, and many people of her day dabbled in spiritualism. Um, Mary Todd Lincoln had seances in the White House, and we see how history has treated her. Abraham Lincoln dabbled um, in the same way Isabella Beecher Hooker uh, was a spiritualist. So was her husband, John, John Hooker. But the difference was John Hooker was asked to speak to ministers to talk to them about spiritualism, and he did so and suffered in no way. Isabella, who didn't dabble in anything, she always went whole hog, was uh, began to be made fun of for that. In fact, when she died, there was a dispute over her will, and a headline in the Hartford Current said, uh, Mrs. Hooker talked to spirits. <laughs> you know, so did a lot of people at the time. Um, and yet, she was she was thought less of because she did that. Um, there was one New Year's Eve party at the house where she came screaming down the staircase uh, thinking she was someone else. And I don't remember if she had a tomahawk or mind that she had a tomahawk. And basically Mark Twain looked at his wife and said, we're out of here. Uh, he did not like her. Um, and, and he made a lot of fun of spiritualism, which is weird because his wife was injured as a young woman and was healed by a spiritualist. So I'm, I'm not sure. I, I don't know what there is out there of Olivia Clemens' beliefs. Um, I'm not a scholar in that area. But it seems strange that Mark Twain made some of his money making fun of this. Anyway. So there was one example where Isabella was doing something that a lot of other people were doing. Granted, she was doing it full-throated, and she became the butt of jokes. Um, I mentioned earlier that her writing was constantly compared with that of her sister, uh, Harriet Beecher Stowe, and never compared favorably, even though she she was a decent writer. Um, it just seems sad to me that... Um, she, she wasn't given much of a break. There was a scandal in the family. Henry Ward Beecher was, um, at the, at the stature of his father, maybe even more so. He was a well-respected minister of Plymouth Church in Brooklyn. The church is still, uh, gathered there. Um, on the one hand, he was a dy dynamic speaker and, you know, fists up against slavery and, uh, You've probably heard of Beecher, Beecher's Bibles, which were actually guns. He also had the reputation of being uh, not true to his marriage vows. In fact, it was said that when uh, Reverend Beecher gave a sermon on Sunday morning, no less than a dozen of his mistresses were there to hear the sermon. Um, and there was one woman in particular who um, spoke about, spoke publicly about what she said was their affair. Um, it, it gets kind of convoluted, but if you ever want to read a fascinating account of this, read Debbie Applegate's The Most Famous Man in America. That doesn't just center on this particular trial that resulted, but um, it was the trial of the century, <laughs> 19th century anyway. Um, and it was interesting because one of the newspaper publishers, Victoria Woodhull, was uh, one of Isabella Beecher Hooker's friends. 
um, and look up Victoria Woodhull. I cannot do her justice in a, in a short podcast about someone else, but um, the Beecher family immediately rallied the troops around Henry Ward Beecher, uh, particularly Harriet, who was closest in age to him, who just could not believe that someone would accuse her brother of doing something so heinous. He was a man of God. On the other hand, Isabella um, believed he had strayed from his marital vows and um, was reasonably vocal about it, um, through, both through her friendship with Victoria Woodhull, but just in general. For this, the family never really forgave her. And honestly, all points, all, all signs point to Henry Ward Beecher was not faithful to his wife, but that's in retrospect. And you can understand how certain members of the family would be so loyal to Henry Ward. How dare you accuse my brother? Whereas Isabella was much more pragmatic and said, yeah, he did it. And then she did that thing that she always does. And she says one thing too many, which was basically, um, and you need Henry Ward to take the year off and repent and get right with God. And I'll preach in your stead during that time. It's like, oh, Isabel, if you just stop talking, <laughs> but you didn't. Um, on his part, Henry Ward um, never publicly denounced Isabella in any way. Um, and, and letters between the two of them are, are loving. Um, where he, the biggest thing he accuses Isabella, Isabella, who is one of his, basically one of his accusers, is that she has a huge heart. You know, he never really answers the charges, but the rest of the family just could not believe that Isabella sided against one of her own. And they started a rumor that she'd lost her mind. And she had always had that reputation of being on the edge but um, that dogged her forever, that she was not just flighty, but that she didn't have full use of her faculties. And that must have hurt so much, um, not only to have the door shut in front of you, but to have your own siblings spread rumors about you that would make you seem less than what you are. When Henry Ward Beecher um, lay dying, Isabella went to his apartment and Henry Ward's wife, who stuck by him through all this, would not let her in, in the house. And so she walked up and down the street giving interviews to reporters who just couldn't believe their luck that here they have a beecher talking about this. And there again, it was one of those, oh, God, Isabella, just stop talking. But she she couldn't. She wouldn't. And she didn't. Um, but she never... It was almost like she could never be taken entirely seriously. There was always a reason to dismiss her, either her spiritualism, um, oh, and her friendship with Victoria Woodhull. The rumors were that they were enjoying more than a friendship. I found no evidence of that. Um, the same tone of her letters to Victoria Woodhull uh, mimicked the tone of her letters to Susan B. Anthony, to Elizabeth Cady Stanton. They were loving, but not sexual. So it, it was either her spiritualism that was a portal through which you could boot her, her purported lesbianism, that was a portal through which you could boot her, um, the fact that she didn't have full use of her faculties, that too was a portal through which you could boot her, or that she wasn't the writer that her sister Harriet Beecher Stowe was, even though the two of them were not writing the same things. And I just kept coming back to. And yet she, and yet she rose. She did not ever stop 
pushing for what she thought was right, even when it probably would have been a lot easier had she done that. It would have been um, easy to have just rested into her role of wife of wealthy Hartford lawyer um, from a, a family very well known in in Connecticut. But she wasn't comfortable doing that because she was from that family, because she was a beecher, and she was called to bigger things, to speak out, to speak up, to stand up. And I think when I finally finished writing the book, I will go to my grave thinking, I didn't do her justice. I tried, and I'm not looking for praise. I'm, I'm not fishing. I tried to do her justice, but just the, the vim and vigor and utter decency and, and inner core strength of this woman I found difficult to capture on the page. And now when I read about her, um, I, I, I've started to see more articles where she's mentioned or books in which she's mentioned. And it just does my heart good that it's not as the flighty, silly, younger sister, the wannabe. It's as this woman who really was an independent woman and a woman unto herself. And, um, and it's a story that we should be telling. And it's a story that moved me to start looking within my own family at the women who've been dismissed through time as, I don't know, all, all sorts of reasons to not pay attention to them. And then when I would dig a little deeper, oh yeah, there was plenty of reason to pay attention to them. And and I would hope that the story of Isabella Beecher Hooker moves everyone to look at their own family. You have giants among you who maybe history didn't treat very well and maybe should have. I mentioned earlier that Isabella Beecher Hooker was reading Blackstone's commentary to her husband, John Hooker, one night. Uh, he had strained his eyes during college and could never find glasses that could help. So she would read his law books to him and, in a sense, was educating herself in a way that I don't think uh, anyone anticipated, neither of the two of them did. And she came across a part that talked about how women are treated legally once they get married. And she had really not wanted to be married. Maybe John Hooker was the only man in the entire world she could have married, uh, he being the feminist abolitionist that he was. But she saw this article and threw the book across the room because it reaffirmed for her what she had feared all along, which was in that time and in that place, when a woman got married, she basically disappeared. She could not own property. She uh, took her husband's name and it was all over but the shouting. Her purpose from that moment on was to bear that man children um, and to be his helpmeet which interested her not at all. She very much wanted a family, but the whole idea of help me and the children being her soul and total concern uh, couldn't have interested her less. Um, and, and John Hooker tried to reassure her that, that that was never his intention and never his idea of what a marriage should be. And um, he, he was continually reassuring her sometimes in letters that they would write back and forth because he traveled and then eventually she traveled as well. Um, I, you would find him reassuring her that that's not what he meant. That's not what he said. Um, but all around Isabella Beecher Hooker were messages that she should uh, shrink, not be so loud, not be so, not be so Isabella, but she was raised to be a Beecher, to be outspoken and opinionated and listened to. Um, what 
had not become clear to her in her early childhood was that, oh, yes, but you're a woman, so all bets are off. So she grew up believing as a beecher um, and as a thinking person that she should be listened to. And when that didn't happen, she reacted. Um, I like that about her a lot. She was very good at saying cutting things in such a genteel way that she could say them. And then 20 minutes later, the person realized, oh, my gosh, <laughs> she just fanged me. Um, but she came to her activism a little bit later than some. Um, she was not in the first group like Elizabeth Cady Stanton and Susan B. Anthony. Um, she was a little later even though she was quietly protesting and doing things in Connecticut, um, such as co-writing a property law with her husband and lobbying for seven years uh, and until the Connecticut state legislator, late legislators finally passed it. But she was very enmeshed, as she thought she should be, in the, the running of her, her home in Hartford, in rearing the children. Um, and she was bored silly with that. Um, she wrote an article and sent it off and it was a satirical article um, that uh, asked if women, if they're not allowed to vote, should they even bother to learn to read? Because what really is the point? Um, a couple of times she would send off an article and she would get back the most damning, um, not praise, she would get back the most damning critique of it, which was uh, basically a pat on the head. And well, of course, you know, a family can't expect to have two Harriets as writers. She was jealous of her sister. Um, and she was a, a writer of, of no small degree of um, expertise, but she was not her sister. And it, it, being reminded of that by editors who maybe meant well, or just really wanted to get her out of their hair. The thing about Isabella that made her maybe a little obnoxious in person and I say that with love, uh, made her a powerful activist in that she was tenacious. She was a dog with a bone. There, um, as she became more and more involved in the suffrage movement, um, Isabella, Katie Stanton, and Susan B. Anthony would sometimes send her their speeches to edit. She was a good writer. They also, between the two of them, Elizabeth and Susan, and I can call them by the first names because we're quite close, they would write letters back and forth and kind of make fun of Isabella. They, they brought her into the fold in no small part because she had money and the movement was continually low on funds. And here was this wealthy Hartford woman who was willing to open her purse for this cause. Um, but Isabella began slowly to... Um, to speak and, and to agitate. A couple of times she went down to Washington. At one point she was testifying before a legislative committee, but she didn't like the way the room was set up and that, um, you know, the senators were sitting up high and she was down low. And so she had them switch places with her and they did. She had that kind of ability to argue. Um, she was, she was genteel, and smart, um, and tenacious. And that was a really dangerous combination. Um, she was always aware that she was somebody, something, she was someone's mother, someone's wife, someone's sister. Uh, and a lot of her activism, I think, uh, involved her becoming an individual or being an individual 
just Isabella Beecher Hooker as opposed to someone's connected to someone. Um, she, she was a wonderful speaker, um, very engaging. And part of that was she could work a room very well. And some of that was her training as the wife of a prominent Hartford lawyer. Some of that was just natural Beecher charisma. Um, but she would use her, her good looks. She would use her presentation uh, to, to make the message more clear. In other words, she was a well-dressed, matronly-looking woman as she got older, um, beautiful white hair pulled up, latest fashion, all that. And then she would get in there and be like a preacher, like her father, like Lyman Beecher, and you know, send you and you and you to hell, and, and they'd go gladly because she made it sound so pleasant. Um, I think she became so involved in the suffrage movement that it was almost like she couldn't understand. I can't either. She couldn't understand how someone wouldn't be involved in this and how someone couldn't see her point that um, the hand that rocks the cradle doesn't rule the world. It's the hand that pulls the ballot. The, the hand that goes into the ballot box, the, the, the hand that runs for office. A lot of her more, um, I don't want to say outlandish, a lot of her claims uh, were dismissed, and I can talk about that next time, because she, she became a, a, an object of ridicule on, on a couple of levels. And some of that she helped bring on herself. When you say that you want uh, eventually to have a matriarchy, um, that's fine. Let's discuss that. But then, as I've often said, she would say that one more thing that would rob her original statement of its weight. Uh, I believe we should have a matriarchy and I should be the first woman president. Should you? <laughs> um, so then it becomes about you. Um, then it becomes about Isabella and, and her craven um, um, she, uh, her craven need for attention, which I don't think she possessed it quite as much as she was labeled as, but um, she wanted she wanted equality, and sometimes I think she found it difficult to um, in, imagine what that is. I think sometimes we all do, even now. She wanted to be an individual, even while she loved her husband very much. She loved her children, and I I won't say just in her own way she deeply loved her children but she didn't want to be identified as their mother alone and in some ways i think she didn't want to be identified as a beecher alone she didn't want to feel like she was riding anyone's coattails including her fabulous families um, she wanted to be appreciative for her own talent her own writing ability her own speaking ability her ability to reason and then share um, and, and I think the activism came fairly naturally for her. I think sometimes she was surprised at the reaction to it, that people didn't wholeheartedly embrace both what she was trying to say about equality, about, um, the suffrage movement and about her being the one saying it. The only other thing I would mention is that there was a lot of growth for her. Um, she was from the Beechers who believed that slavery was wrong um, but that that we should probably send the formerly enslaved people to Africa. She believed that in the beginning. And John Hooker very carefully 
worked with her and would send her articles and books to show her that that was really kind of a chicken way out, that these are people. And if we believe they are people, then we need to enfranchise them with all the rights that we have come to expect. So she eventually became a full-throated abolitionist and the letters that the family would send back and forth, she went in there with fist flying, verbal fist flying, to argue with her more degreed uh, siblings that their stance on slavery was not quite good enough, <laughs> that it, it that it didn't take into account the lives after slavery, how, how the people who had been enslaved would live um, in this country as our neighbor, as our everything. Um, and I give her a lot of credit that this younger, prettier sister who could sometimes get shouted down by her older siblings would not back down because once she had this belief, once she believed something, then you all are going to believe this. And let me show you how. I admire that so much. <laughs> 